It's Friday, August 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden has condemned ISIS-K attacks in Kabul that killed at least 13 U.S. service members, over 60 Afghans, and injured many more. He also vowed to hunt them down and make them pay. This comes as evacuations continue amid a looming deadline. Jessica Donati, reporter at The Wall Street Journal and author of Eagle Down, The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War, joins us for how the CIA and other troops are conducting missions outside of Kabul to extract Americans. Next, as the Delta variant continues to infect so many people, the demand for at-home COVID tests is going up. The only problem with that is that the test manufacturers can't keep up and they're becoming harder to find online and on pharmacy shelves. These antigen tests have faced questions of reliability, but work best on people who are shedding lots of virus particles and provide quick test results. Brianna Abbott, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, NFTs are all the rage in the art market right now, but with all this money come scammers and hackers trying to take advantage of people by selling fake art, stealing credit card numbers, and even spreading viruses that can drain crypto wallets of all their funds. Kelly Crow, art reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for why you should be wary of NFT scams. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Joining us now is Jessica Donati, reporter at The Wall Street Journal and author of Eagle Down, The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War. Thanks for joining us, Jessica. Thanks for having me. The situation in Afghanistan continues to deteriorate as we hit that August 31st deadline for evacuation. We saw two suicide bombings killed a number of military members. 60 Afghans were killed in these blasts. Jessica, if we can start there, what happened? We believe that this might have been the work of this uh, ISIS offshoot, ISIS-K. Right. There's still uh, a lot of confusion over what happened. Uh, We are hearing that there were at least two blasts at one of the main gates for getting into the airport, one of the gates that has been the most crowded. The U.S. and other foreign nations have taken to bringing in people from different gates. And so it's not clear to me whether this gate was ever going to open. Uh, And unfortunately, the people targeted were most likely some of the most uh, vulnerable Afghans. And recently you you wrote an article talking about how the CIA and other uh, U.S. troops were conducting these missions outside of the airport to help extract Americans and Afghan allies. How's that been going? One of the biggest problems has been getting people into the airport. Once uh, you get through the Taliban checkpoints, you have to then get through a checkpoint run by uh, elite Afghan forces, and then you get through to the Marines. And so it's an incredibly difficult process where even if you are an Afghan with an approved visa, the Taliban might not let you through. The uh, Afghan security forces may not have your name. And then the chances of the Marines out there spotting you because you're wearing the right type of clothing, there's just hundreds of people who fit, uh, who, who could come in, but they just aren't able to do it. So what's been happening is that these teams have been going out and rescuing people from rallying points around the city. So they'll get clusters of people to show up in, say, a hotel or in a safe house, and uh, they'll be picked up there. But this is really just uh, the sort of lucky minority of people, because there's still hundreds of people from all sorts of different organizations with valid documents who are unable to get through. How are these operations being conducted? 
the more um, sort of uh, interesting cases of these rescues are people going out in uh, local clothes and trying to sort of pass for locals to be able to get people inside the airport. And those are happening from rallying points that are further away from the Baron Hotel. One of the problems that they have with flying uh, helicopters over the city is that there's a risk of them getting shot down. And if they do, then they don't want to Black Hawk Down scenario where they then have to rescue U.S. service members in the middle of the city. So they're very, very cautious with flying overhead. You were in Afghanistan uh, talking to these special forces soldiers who were really kind of the last bastion there as all of this drawdown was starting to begin. What did you learn from those forces? And, and, And if you have had any contact with them since all of this has been happening, how do they feel about the situation unfolding right now? Unfortunately, to any soldier that has deployed to Afghanistan with the special opera- in the special operations community in recent years, none of what has happened is surprising. The book explains how uh, since about 2015, U.S. special operations has been keeping the Taliban from capturing major cities and important territory. And so the removal of those special operations forces is what caused the rest of the Afghan army to collapse because until then they were depending on these special forces to come into cities, help the Afghan commandos, call in airstrikes, get um, intelligence support, logistics support, all sorts of things that you need to keep an army running over the Afghan terrain. And so pulling them out very swiftly caused the country to collapse. And many of them are very uh, angry about what has happened, um, especially, I think, with the way that the drawdown has been handled, because it was predictable and this chaotic, really desperate scenes at the airport could have been avoided. When the Taliban moved in, I mean, they moved in pretty quickly and Afghan forces seemingly just gave up. In your contact with the special forces, you know, that you worked with through the book and all, did they feel that same way that, you know, the Afghan forces were just going to fold, you know, without their presence there? It's a very complicated theme. I mean, on one hand, Afghan soldiers and police have been dying in far higher numbers than the U.S. If you think about the number of casualties the U.S. has had in 20 years about deaths, it's around 2,500. And Afghans suffer two or three times as many casualties every year. So I think what you're hearing from the Biden administration that the army didn't want to fight, that's really not accurate. What is the problem is that this army has been led by very poor, corrupt leadership, often propped up by the U.S., and uh, they're missing um, basic logistical supplies. The U.S. withdrawal also removed the support that kept their vehicles running, their air force flying. So without all of these things, it's very difficult for soldiers to hold out in isolated places where they would be surrounded by Taliban and they would run out of supplies. Many of them had no choice to fight. And when it comes to choosing to fight, what are you fighting for if your leadership is so corrupt they don't even give you money for food or uniforms? Jessica Donati, reporter at The Wall Street Journal and author of Eagle Down, The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now that we've seen things swing in the opposite direction, including cases surging, the notion that vaccinated people can and do sometimes spread the virus, And, you know, just the overall worsening of the pandemic, kids going back to school, you're really seeing that demand take off again. Joining us now is Brianna Abbott, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Brianna. Thanks for having me. So something we had kind of uh, forgotten about a little bit, the demand definitely was dropping, was for COVID tests, at-home COVID tests. But as the Delta variant has been surging, 
the need for these tests has become more clear. And right now, unfortunately, the makers of these at-home tests are having a tough time keeping up with that demand. So we're looking at Abbott Laboratories, Quidelcore, and a couple of other ones that are really starting to ramp up the production of these tests again. So Brianna, help us uh, walk through some of this. What are we seeing? What we sort of saw in the, the late spring and early summer was testing demand really plummeted for a few different reasons. We had federal guidance that said that vaccinated people didn't really need to get tested anymore unless they had symptoms and you had a lot more vaccinated people and cases were dropping. And so, you know, there just wasn't as much demand for testing. And as a result, some of the companies, including Abbott, scaled down some of their production. They say that they were sort of forced to scale back given the lack of demand. And now that we've seen things swing in the opposite direction, including cases surging, the notion that vaccinated people can and do sometimes spread the virus, and, you know, just the overall worsening of the pandemic, kids going back to school, you're really seeing that demand take off again. And as a result, you are seeing some of the manufacturers sort of rushing to to keep up. Some of them never really ramped down, but even those who did or did not, everybody is sort of rushing to keep pace with the demand. What we're talking about specifically, so people get the right frame of mind, we're talking about these at-home antigen tests. So we're not talking about the PCR test. So if you yes. can, uh, Brandon, h- help us walk through some of uh, you know the major players in there. As I mentioned, Abbott Laboratories, theirs is called Binax now and, and a few other names out there. So when it comes to the at-home antigen test, a lot of these weren't authorized for over-the-counter pharmacy drugstore use until like March or April of 2021. So this is the first surge where we really had them available like on pharmacy shelves just for anybody to buy. And so we have sort of three main antigen tests, which is the Binex Now from Abbott Laboratories. There's the Quidel QuickView from Quidel Corp. And then there's the Illum at-home test from the company Illum. And then there's also at-home molecular tests, like sort of like at-home PCR that use slightly different technology. There's one from Lucera Health, but those are sort of even harder to find than the antigen ones. There's always been a conversation about the reliability of these antigen tests, these rapid tests. Sometimes there's false positives or false negatives even. But, uh, you know, experts do say that they kind of work when you're using them in succession, uh, you know, maybe three tests in a row, something like that. Uh, I think they call them, them uh, they call them contagiousness tests because it helps uh, kind of track that a little bit better. Definitely. So with antigen tests, they're different than the molecular tests, which, you know, hunt for the virus's genetic material and sort of amplify it. And so there's no amplification process with these antigen tests that look for bits of virus proteins. And so they are a bit less sensitive. And so you're going to have them miss some more cases might be a couple false positives, but the bigger concern is, is false negatives. But um, all of the data that we have show that these antigen tests, they work well when viral loads are pretty high. And so if you're just shedding virus all over the place and you're incredibly contagious, the test will pick you up. But they miss sort of those lower rung. If, you don't, if you're not carrying a lot of virus at that time, they might miss it. And so they work best when, when viral loads are high. And so the whole idea of using them in rapid succession is that the amount of virus in your body like changes over the course of an infection. And so if you don't have a lot of virus in the beginning, the test might miss it. But two days later, your viral load could shoot up and then the test would pick it up. And so that's why you might want to use multiple tests in a row. And both the Abbott and the Quidel tests are authorized for screening. And so if you're screening without symptoms, you're really supposed to take two of them over the course of like a couple days. 
costs for these tests? How much do they cost? And, you know, because, you know, to buy at-home tests uh, can get pretty expensive, it seems like. The cheapest runs run for a two-pack of $20 or so. It's roughly $10 for tests, but you have to buy two of them. So it's essentially $20. That's okay if you want to use it as like a one-time screening thing or you have symptoms and you really need an answer now. But for just something like regular screening, like most people aren't going to be able to afford to sort of constantly buy $20 worth of tests. There have been public health experts that have sort of really been saying that if we really want widespread use of these as, you know, frequent screening tools, the price is going to have to come down. Brianna Abbott, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've talked with artists who have lost as much as $4 million in a single go. Artists who are finding their work on sale, you know, as NFTs on platforms, and they've never tried to mention NFT in their life. So some person has just (laughs) impersonated them and taken their work. Joining us now is Kelly Crow, art reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about NFTs, non-fungible tokens in the art market right now. NFTs are all the rage right now. The art market is supercharged by them and people buying them. You know, it's the new digital flex for a lot of people uh, out there. But as with any new emerging thing, scammers and hackers are always ready to pounce on this. And what we're seeing right now is fake art, fake NFTs, stolen credit card numbers, other phishing schemes and and, uh, people draining digital wallets. It's pretty crazy. So, Kelly, help us walk through some of it. What are we seeing? I mean, a lot of folks in my world, I cover the art world. And so artists and curators and collectors are all very curious to sort of wade into this rapidly expanding marketplace. But sort of the truth is that there's a little bit of a dark side to it because there are very, very bad guys out there that are very savvy technologically. And in addition to sort of just doing the regular click on this link phishing schemes, right, that can drain your stuff. There's pretty complex fraud happening. One artist that I talked to said, you know, he described it as just massive, massive fraud. And so, you know, you've got phony platforms popping up that are sort of enlisting artists to send work. But in fact, the whole ruse is that they're just stealing their credit card information as well as that of buyers potentially who love the art. I've talked with artists who have lost as much as $4 million in a single go. Artists who are finding their work on sale, you know, as NFTs on platforms, and they've never tried to mention NFT in their life. So some person has just (laughs) impersonated them and taken their work. And basically, you know, there's a real Wild West feel about the whole marketplace right now. And I just think artists and consumers just need to wade into it very carefully and make sure you have some security regulations sort of in place. There's a huge irony with it because, you know, a lot of this stuff is being done with cryptocurrency, obviously very decentralized and all that. But, you know, with these NFTs, you know, they're being traded on the blockchain, right, where you're supposed to be able to track everything so much. And uh, dealing with the cryptocurrency is kind of the opposite. You know, you're not you're not able to track so many Mm -hmm. things. So there's a big irony, too, in the way these things are traded. It's really poignant because I think a lot of artists sort of entered into this space with a lot of great hope, right? That for the first time, 
they would be able to embed in the coding, right, of their work that they would sell, things that would lock in resale rights so that that when collectors trade their pieces in the future, that they could get a cut, right, which has never really been implemented across the board ever before, right? And as well as just sort of logging the buyers. A lot of artists, sometimes dealers don't tell them who's buying their work and they feel a little bit out of control of their market over time. And this was meant to solve a lot of problems, but the problem is that it's created some as well because not everyone's an honest broker. And yeah. so um, plenty of people are buying and trading NFTs, but plenty of hackers are also, you know, seizing, making hay from it too. So what we're seeing right there is a lot of scammers kind of making copies of artwork and putting them out there. A lot of people are trying to go on the offensive and try to use software AI to basically track to see if there's copies of artwork that's already out there. Yeah, I mean, I think platforms have taken so much heat, uh, OpenSea, Wearable, the kind of the ones that don't do a lot of curated content, the ones that sort of operate more like eBay, where they take all comers. They're coming under a lot of fire right now because scammers are posting other people's work and passing it off as their own. And so they are starting to develop more AI technology to check for duplicate images. So if, if some, some image exists out there in, in the metaverse and also pops up on their page, that maybe they can find it and sort of stem it or just flag the artist to make sure that it's the real deal. Other entities are just sort of starting from scratch to try to think, how can we make these things safer? And so you've got companies like Chip, which say we're going to work with the artist at the point where it's minted to make sure that it has all of this archival sort of data embedded in it that can be moved from platform to platform so that stuff doesn't get lost in transit. You have other guys like Verisart who are kind of going back to old tech in a way. They're doing both digital certificates of authenticity, but also hard copies that collectors can hang on to. So there's a little bit of a, you know, back channel way to check who has the real JPEG. But I think everyone's just sort of experimenting because so much of the technology is new and yet so much of the greed is old. <laughs> and, and it's not just being duped, you know, your credit card information or buying a fake piece of NFT art. People are getting hit with viruses, too, where they're getting uh, their digital wallets attacked and, and money siphoned away from them. I think that was the, one of the artists that lost the four million dollars in cryptocurrency. <laughs> Yeah. And that was, I mean, again, these artists, especially NFT and digital artists who are suddenly finding real sudden fame after just doing this stuff for free for many, for many years are doing it as sort of their side hobby while making money as graphic designers or animators. Like now suddenly they're in the art world and they're getting lot, they're getting inundated on their social media sites with offers to collaborate, offers to commission pieces. I mean, it's kind of an exciting time to suddenly be in the spotlight, but one artist, you know, one collector told me all it takes is one click, right? Like if you open up a file, someone says, oh, we want to send you some more information about this commission. And then it can be pretty insidious really quickly if you don't have two-factor authentication set up. If you're sort of storing all of your digital wealth on a platform as opposed to having some sort of a literally like a thumb drive, hard drive component that you can unplug right. <laughs> that will protect things. There are some ways that you can do it smarter, but I will say that the sting is probably different than just losing money on a credit card fraud, because you can call your credit card and say, I was defrauded and get your money back. But there's very little recourse if you've bought a fake piece of NFT art, because yeah. the hacker's not going to give you your money back. <laughs> and the transparency on the blockchain makes it possible for you to see that money go from your account to theirs. And they you can then watch them spend it on other things. And you have no way to get that money back, which is just yeah. insult to injury. <laughs> Kelly Crow, art reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. 
that's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.